You can go ahead and take your seats, and um, at this time, Children's Church is dismissed, and if you're not sure where to send them or you're new with us and you're wondering where your child should go, just follow the crowd here to my right, um, your left, and uh, if you want to know where to pick them up, just the building adjacent to this one um, is our Ed Center, and you can find them there. They will be waiting for you. Uh, I want to invite you, if you have the scriptures with you, to turn. This is kind of what you might call a leftover sermon. I technically, <laughs> leftover, it sounds bad, doesn't it? Um, it? It just kind of formally, I, I finished the book of Second Samuel last, last week with a kind of summation of the last four chapters. But there's a story that's in um, the middle of those four chapters that's one of the most beloved uh, mighty man stories that I just couldn't bear to um, neglect and uh, in addition to that, it, it, it really does prepare us for the table, which we're going to celebrate this morning, which is always a high point in worship, is be able to take the bread and the cup celebration of, and a remembrance of Jesus' uh, great sacrifice on our behalf. Um, so that's why I'm back in. It's kind of a leftover um, a devotional um, from the life of David. Um, I don't know where you've been this week, but this week, week a bit was like a roller coaster ride in terms of the news. Um, it, maybe it was for you too. You know, I, I tend to see the news at the gym. It's always plastered in front of me. And, and of course, seeing we have, you know, Navy destroyers moving towards Syria. And there's that ominous sense that we might be pulled into another conflict. And whatever you may think about the wisdom or the foolishness of that, the fact is that war is always a depressing thing. Um, uh, that's one thing, you know. And then on, on top of that, we had a major fire in our city, which, you know, made news all around California and actually beyond California. I actually had my mom call me on that day saying, Danny, are you okay? I have people calling from all over saying, is Danny okay? And then I get an email from somebody in Southern California, are you guys okay? And I just wanted to say, you know, not everybody in Fairfield lives on Marigold, you know? <laughs> it's just, it's a bigger city than that. But uh, I appreciated the heart. I mean, my mom is watching the same news I am. Hello, mom, it's Channel 10. It says Marigold, you know where I live, but I appreciated her heart. I uh, said, yeah, we're fine. We're, we're okay. So that was a kind of another bit of excitement in our week. But there's this other thing that on the news that was just kind of a, um, it was an inspiration. It's, it, Tuesday morning. Um, some of you will, will know what I'm talking about. There's this, uh, there's this uh, award ceremony for a man by the name of Ty Michael Carter, um, Staff Sergeant um, Ty Michael Carter, who was awarded the Medal of Honor on Monday. And then uh, inducted into the hall, the Pentagon Hall of Heroes. And uh, whenever you see stuff like that, you kind of got to go, at least I do, got to go read the backstory. I'm, so why is this guy given the Medal of Honor, you know? So I, I read the story and, and um, little bits and pieces of it, and it, it just is inspiring, you know? Back in 2009, April 3rd, I just got to tell you a little bit of it because it's just, it's inspiring. Um, this unit of about 53 people over in... Um, in Afghanistan. There, it's an outpost in Afghanistan. Just imagine, 53 soldiers. They wake up to what they consider 300 Taliban um, coming down upon them, right? This is back in 2009, October 3rd. 300 Taliban coming down on them. Well, this, this Thai, let's just call him Staff Sergeant Carter. Um, the supplies are running low and the ammunition is running low, and so he endeavors, at risk of his own life, to run back and forth across this outpost, you know, exposed to fire, RPGs are going off, bringing ammunition to the guys who are trying to hold off this, this number, 300 against 53. Uh, well, he does this over and over again in the process of this, this firefight and this massive outnumbered uh, conflict. Um, 
his friend, a man by the name of uh, Stephen Mace, uh, ends up getting shot. It's his, it's his battle buddy. And um, he manages to, to scoop him up and take him to safety. Now, the sad thing is he died later, I believe, in surgery. Um, but he continued to, to, to bring supplies, ammunitions. Another person was shot, and he managed to drag him. And, and uh, it says that he picked up his M4, and they just, with limited ammunition, um, they managed to repel 53 to 300 the Taliban. That's a six times the number that they had. And I just read the story, and you're just like, wow. I mean, running out in the open and bullets flying and RPGs, that's rocket-propelled grenades, for those of you who may not know what that is. Um, it's just flying by, things blowing up, and yet he put his life at risk uh, for his country and, of course, for his, his, his men. And uh, stories like that just kind of make you um, inspired. And, you know, it's interesting that our hearts are, are drawn to stories of self-sacrifice because it's so noble um, to see someone willing to put their life at risk for the sake of another. My favorite movies are about that. My favorite stories and novels are about that. And it's something in the human heart that gravitates itself to self-sacrifice. Perhaps that's because we look around and so much of the world we live in is so much the opposite. Living for itself, self-centered, willing to sacrifice others for the sake of self. And here's a, an example of a hero who sacrifices himself for the sake of others, and those those stories are, are inspiring, and and I think that there is a a divine wisdom in providing stories of heroes. Now it can backfire on us, but 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 I believe that 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 God Himself um, appoints such stories, not just of uh, a staff sergeant, but you know we have at least three lists in the Bible of, of heroes. Um, we have Hebrews eleven. We call them the heroes of faith, or we could call them the heroes of grace, too. Um, and then we have these two hero lists in the life of David. And one is found in 2 Samuel 21. The second one is found in 2 Samuel 23. Now, let me say, by way of maybe warning or clarity, as I said, we, we, we can look at these heroes in a way that will backfire and misfire. That is, if we overly idolize either the person or the specific call on their life. Well, then it can have an adverse effect on our heart, and that is not how God appointed those stories to be read. That is, um, the Bible's pretty explicit that all of the men who are heroes in the Bible, except one, are flawed and broken in ways, so they're not to be worshipped. And in fact, we are to see um, the potential of God's grace alive in these sinful men. That's the, that's the, the inspiring part. In addition to that is, is that everybody is called to their own specific call and path. And so if we look at how they lived, Samson, you know, and his, his pushing down the, the pillars, although I won't really want to be the one pushing down the pillars because he killed himself in that particular act. But, you know, you look at these lives and you think, man, how come I couldn't have been born then? How come I couldn't have been that guy? I remember college, I was reading uh, Hudson Taylor's uh, Spiritual Secret. He was the, he was the uh, missionary to China who did so much, and I found myself feeling in my heart, man, why couldn't I have been Hudson Taylor? It would have been so cool to break the ice over there in China. And the Lord re- rebuked me and has rebuked me time and time again when I idolized the path that somebody has called somebody else on to remind me and to remind you that I've called you to a different path. So, so those stories, these stories of, of, of heroes are, are not to be for the purpose of idolizing the men or the call. God has different things in store for each of us, but to see in their lives an example of faith in God's grace moving in powerful ways through them, kind of holding up the potential um, for us 
to be inspired to run with, with more passion and, and more sacrifice this race we have before us as, as Christians. So um, it's in that light that I, I want to come to this particular story of, of one of David's um, mighty men, a hero. Um, I loved reading these as kids, uh, as a kid, and, and uh, I still love 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 the story of his of his of his heroes. Um, this particular one is beloved, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, a lot of people have preached on it, so it might not be new to you. But I find um, this particular story, twenty three eight and following, um, to be what I would call an insanity. <laughs> T- the, 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 the title I have up here is poured out. And I, this morning I thought, you know what? I should have renamed this Insanity is what I should have named this because this story is absolute insanity. Well, I want to read to you um, before the story actually begins, uh, beginning in verse 8. And actually, I think I, I misled you. Um, we're going to be looking at 13 through 18 or 13 through 17 but in order to lay this on a proper theological foundation, I, I thought it would be important for us to go ahead and read beginning in verse 8. Let's read this together. Let's not look at that screen. Let's look at this screen. This one, if you don't know, the pixels are going out, and it's a little more difficult to read. It should be fixed by next week. Here's how it is. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshed, Bashabeth, the Tech. Ammonite, these are nice long names. Um, he was chief of the three. He's, these are the three most, um, how do I say this, renowned of David's mighty men. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. Now, that's pretty awesome. 800, like that's Achilles and that's Hector rolled into one, you know, with David. That's the first one, the and the best, the most renowned. And next to him, among the, the three mighty men, was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the son of Ohohi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. In other words, everybody else left the battle lines except, presumably, David and this man named Eliezer, or perhaps a couple of the other mighty men, but he's the one singled out. It says he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. It was, it was like welded to the sword. He couldn't get his hand undone because he was, you know, whether it was a cramp or there was blood, we don't know. It's just he couldn't let go of his sword. And it says, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. That's the rest of the Israelite army coming after the battle's already over. Bunch of chickens. Verse 11. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Hararite. Uh, the Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. Again, Israel flees. But he, Shema, he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. Now, these are some pretty amazing feats on the part of his three most renowned mighty men. They didn't shrink back, they didn't retreat. Even when they stood there by themselves or with a small band, they, they just continued to fight. But the writer is careful enough to let us know who the hero is behind the hero. Because twice in here, he reminds us the Lord brought about a great victory. That's verse 10 underlined there. And again, in verse 12, the Lord worked a great victory. So the champion behind these mighty champions is nothing less than the mighty hand of God. We mustn't miss that. 
Because I believe that's key to understanding the whole list is that as the Lord was behind these men, so the Lord was behind all of these mighty men's mighty feats and victories. So the grand champion, I'm saying, is, is the Lord, and you have to remember that. Now, having stated that, here's the story that I want to focus in on, beginning in verse 13. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Dulam. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. And there, I want to stop for a second. I'm going to hide the rest of it from you. This is uh, what I would call... Um, the devotion of insanity. That's, think of what I'd call it. The devotion of these three men toward David is remarkably insane. I hear David is. He's, uh, this, the, the events of, of, of this are probably set in 2 Samuel chapter 5. The Philistines just find out David has been crowned king. And as a result, they begin to hunt him down. And so he goes back to where he's used to, which is the caves of Adullam. Um, and there he hides out. And um, probably hungry, weary, and parched. And what he does at this moment is, is he does what many of us do, you know? In those moments of exhaustion, you remember back. Almost a moment of nostalgia in which you remember back to some good things, maybe in your home life. For David, it was, it was water. It was water from the well of Bethlehem from his hometown, um, which he probably drank growing up as a boy. You know, out shepherding, wanting water, coming back to the well of Bethlehem by the gate and drinking the refreshing water. Um, you and I do this too. I've heard people from New York say, man, what I wouldn't give for a hot dog from that street vendor on such and such. Or people from Chicago going, if I could only have a Gino's pizza. Or people from California in the Midwest saying, I just want In-N-Out Burger. That's what I want. Now, that last one's a big stretch for me, but you kind of get the, get the sense. He's just saying, I just, I just want some water. I wish I had some water. You know, FedEx it right down here to me. It's just this moment of, of expressing a wish. And his, his men decide to do, again, what if you were to counsel these men, you'd say, never do that. That's complete foolishness. It's insanity. But they're so given to the pleasure of their king even satisfying the wish of their king, that they decide that they're going to go ahead and embark on this mission to get a drink of water for their king. Just wish. They're kind of, kind of men that they hear the wish of their king, and they're like, your wish is my command. And so the three of them leave Adullam and head up to Bethlehem. Now, if you live there, that would mean a lot more to you than it does here. But from Adullam to, to Bethlehem is roughly a 12-mile stretch. And it's not flat. It's not downhill. It's uphill. You're, you're heading over these rocky hill country up into the Judean hills where we learn that the Philistines have infiltrated the, the, the land of Israel to the point that they're in the heart, uh, heart of Israel. Jerusalem and Bethlehem are about three miles apart. So they're up in the high country. And so here are these men. They march or hike or whatever you want to call it 
12 miles through the rugged country up into the Judean hills. And at the end of that, of course, they have to, they have to storm the gate of Bethlehem. Now, naturally, that would be the place of command central for the Philistines, the most fortified position. Now, you see why it's insane? Like, you would never do this. Nobody would counsel anybody to do this. For the wish of a king, these men go 12 miles up. They, they, they storm the, the ranks of the, of the Philistines. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to think that when they got to the well, two were continuing to fight. The other guy's drawing up water. You can almost picture the other two going, hurry up. <laughs> you know, come on, pull up the water as fast as you can. Get it into the canteen. We got to go. They fight their way back and then 12 miles back down the hill to give David his precious water. I mean, roughly speaking, that's like going from here to Vallejo, only uphill, and then back down. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a marathon, in the middle of which you're taking on Philistines in a fortified position. All to get your king a drink of water. That is insane. It is insane. Such was the devotion, the selfless and fearless devotion that they had to the pleasure of their king. Now, that is, um, that should be inspiring. It should be even more so when you think about the fact that they did this for their king who was a fallen man. And the list reminds us of that by listing or naming Uriah at the very end, that David is a sinner. How much more, you know, for those of us who have come to see, experience, and taste the king of kings and the one to whom David's life was just a figment or a shadow, a small plebeian compared to the majesty of the one to come who was perfect. And the kind of devotion that'd be willing to do anything for the pleasure of and for the satisfaction of Jesus. The people that I have read about in the New Testament and on beyond that in missions who have tasted and seen that Jesus is that good, they do just the same thing. You have Paul who's able to say, I count everything as lost. Everything. Because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. Someone he'd be willing to sacrifice everything, including his own life for, because he's that good. People have noticed the parallel between this passage and John chapter 12, where Mary takes this alabaster jar of, of, of massively expensive perfume, $30,000, $40,000 in our time, probably something handed down to her for generations, and, and she takes it, and she finds something of such worth in Jesus that she breaks it, and the disciples are upset. Why did you waste it? And it's like, it's not wasted, Jesus said. It's not wasted. It's, it's been broken over me for my death. You have the song that we sung a few moments ago, taken out of Revelation chapter 12, when it says that they conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and the next part is so key. They did not love their lives even to the point of death. It's like, you want my life? Take it. Because that's how insanely Devoted I am to you because you are so good. Now, that's, that's what you call selfless and fearless devotion to Jesus. Something that ought to increasingly radiate from the lives of those who really know him. 
Now granted, as I said, not everybody's called to the same path. Most of us are never going to make headlines in history. Give three or four generations, you'll be a name on a family tree. The majority of our lives are going to be lived doing ordinary things. Being a mom at home, being a teacher, being a pastor, driving a truck, putting pipes together. And where we should be living out that insane devotion is oftentimes in the small things in life that people can see in how you speak, decisions you make with your finances, where you go on Sunday morning or Saturday night. They should see someone who is insanely, selflessly, and fearlessly committed to the King of Kings in those ordinary things. So I said, this is, in one sense, this story is a picture of the insanity of devotion um, because God is worth it. In this case, I don't know that David is worth it because the story goes on with an insane act of worship because I think reading between the lines, David was utterly flabbergasted and overwhelmed by the fact that here the guy, these guys come marching in after 25 miles round trip and fighting the Philistines, you know, in a fortified position. They're like, here you are, canteen. And he's so overwhelmed, the text tells us he couldn't bring himself to drink it. Now we see the verse again. It says here that they carried the brought to David, but he would not drink it of it. He poured it out to the Lord. He said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men? That's water, but he sees in this water their blood, their life. They risk their lives for a wish. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now, you know, to be honest, the first time I read this, I felt a little angry, you know? Here these guys do this marathon. They come back probably thinking, David's going to be so pleased and so excited, you know? We're heroes, man. He's going to give us medals of honor for doing this. And then he takes the water and he, like, pours it on the ground. It's like, what a waste. I could hear conversations that people around here would be having. What in the world are you doing? I brought all this water all this way, and you make mud pies in the caves of Dulem. Go get your own water next time. I mean, that's what you'd be thinking. What a waste. But, but it's actually quite the reverse. That, that David knows that this water and what it represents is the life of his men, and he knows he's not worthy of that kind of sacrifice. Now, this goes opposite to a very self-centered leader who would say, well, wow, this is great. I am the king. I'm going to drink my water because my subjects adore me. But David is a, a man of humble worship. He knows his place before the Lord, and he knows that there's only one person worthy of this treasure. You see? There's only one person worthy of, of blood poured out um, for the sake of somebody else, especially a wish. And so quite to the opposite of wasting it, David does um, the only thing he knows to do with it, the only thing worthy to do with it, because it is so priceless and it is so valuable. It is so sacred 
that he offers it to the only one worthy of it. He offers it to the Lord. You notice it says that he poured it out to the Lord. This is an image of, 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 of David denying himself the pleasure of the water he wanted so bad. There's the denial of the pleasure because of the greater worth of, of offering it to the Lord as an act of worship. That's what I say. This is, a, this is kind of a, a picture of the, the insanity of, 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 of humble worship. Um, because it's surprising. Why would you pour it on the ground? That seems insane. Well, yeah, that's, it is in one sense, but that's because, again, David knows the worthiness of the Lord, and he, so he pours it out as a gift. And that, my friends, is, 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 is a, a very summed-up picture of what worship is all about, is knowing someone so worthy that you're willing to sacrifice at expense of yourself because he's so worthy. Now, as I was thinking about that, I realized that, that that's, a, that's a, a timely, um, maybe not welcomed, admonition for us. Because when we think about or talk about worship, and that is such the buzz these days is worship and worship conferences and everybody's listening to worship on their t- on their iPods and their MP3 players and, and that we oftentimes associate worship with the experience of the worshiper. So we hear things like, and just hear me out here, so we hear things like, well, was worship good today? And sometimes if the preacher's on, stirring, inspires, and if the song's moved you, well then, yeah, worship was really good today. But in that statement, the measure of the worship is measured by the experience of the worshiper. Now, I will be the first to say, um, not the first, many have said this before, I don't want to diminish the importance of affection and experience and, and feelings in the sense of worship, but let's understand one thing, and that is worship is, is magnifying the worth of the one we worship. It's it's fundamentally not really about how good the experience was for me. It's, it's how worthy is the one that I've come to worship. And part of establishing that worthship, that ascribing of worth, is, is this sense of sacrifice, which we've lost. I'll tell you what. Those of us who got married, when you went to your wife or your girlfriend at the time and you asked her to marry you, you didn't give her a ring got taken from a bubblegum machine. She would say no. And if your girlfriend didn't say no, then she should say no. Because part of the sacrifice is a man of like, oh, I'm digging deep. I, I could get a diamond. I want her to know how much she means to me. And in that sacrifice, you... You reflect to her her worth. Where there is no sacrifice, there's no reflecting back the worth of the one worshipped. That means the whole concept of sacrifice is, is essential to this thing we call worship. But many want the feelings of worship without the sacrifice of worship, which isn't worship. Because people want to live their lives on their own terms, hold their life close financially in terms of their homes and their treasure and possessions. They want to feel it, but they don't want to 
offer up and, and say, Lord, you are so worthy. This is yours, as you would to your wife, girlfriend when you give her the ring. Here, David gets it right. Here's this valuable treasure. In this cup, he has symbolized the blood of his men. He knows there's only one worthy of that, and so he expense to himself, doesn't drink the water. He says, this is yours. So let, let that just hang in your mind. Where there is no sacrifice in worship, it's just words. This is about what we gather to do and hopefully what you're doing on, through the week. It's once again responding to the grand worth of the God who created and redeemed us. And part of that is seen in our sacrificial heart, offering up valuable things, time, voices, whatever it is, because he's worth that. That's worship. So we have this, a picture of, just call it insane um, devotion, this kind of insane worship, like, what did you do? But I also think in this is a picture of the insanity of redemption itself. And this brings us to the table. You can't help but connect what happens here to the sacrificial theme of the whole Bible. Here you have men who are, in essence, risking their life or pouring out their life for the sake of their king, willing to self-sacrifice. And Jesus told us, there's no greater love that a man can have for another than a man lay down his life for his friend. Here's his men willing to lay down their lives for him. And then, then David takes this cup, and, and he's like, I can't drink this cup of blood. He knows what it is. It symbolizes the sacrifice that they made. It's part of the heart and soul of, of, of the story of the Bible and the story of redemption. Is, here's this bringing together of blood and sacrifice and pouring out in this moment of worship. And my mind immediately goes, because of its, how it ties into the whole, of, of really what you might call the mighty man above all mighty men. All these guys who do these amazing feats and these, these verses are just tiny replicas of, of the one to come, of the mighty man who, he didn't go 25 miles. You know, there's just, it's, it's heaven to earth. It's majesty to manger, you know? And then he too ascended the Judean hills and made his way up towards Jerusalem. And, and there he would hold up a cup symbolizing his blood. And he would say, this is my blood. It's not the blood of another man or other men. It's, this is mine, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. He holds it up, and he offers it. And then he goes up the hill of Golgotha, or the place of the skull. And there he for us on our behalf, though we're completely and utterly unworthy of it, we always were and we are today, and there he storms the gates of hell, death, and sin so that he could bring back to us the cup of life. And I'll tell you, that's what makes insane devotion and insane worship possible is to know that God himself 
is our essential, primary, supreme, mighty man who has offered it all to give us the water of life. And that kind of God is worth that kind of devotion, is worth that kind of worship, worth that kind of establishing and radiating how great he is. And that's the heart of where those kind, those, the, the, that, 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 that insane devotion to the pleasure of our king and worship of his name comes from. That's the heart of redemption. And, and here is, we celebrate this morning that our the mighty man of God. So I want to ask you, you know, you can do a, one or two things with this, this message. One, you can just say, well, that was inspiring, and then just believe. You can look at your life and say, man, it, have I grown soft? Have I, have, I, have I started playing? Have I, have I lost my, my passion for Jesus and my desire to please him in all that I do? And am I, am I a person who... who reflects back his worthiness through the sacrifice of my life. And then, if that's where you are, to say, Lord, please, relight this fire within. Don't let me be lukewarm, but let me be hot or cold for you. Um, Because you've given it all. You have poured out um, your blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could live forever with you. So, I just, you know, this is between you and the Lord. I don't know your heart, and you don't know mine. But we come to this place where we're going to hold what is the symbol of a cup in our hands. The, the precious cup of life spilled out. Precious, holy, a treasure. What a grace and mercy to even be able to take it in and know that he did it for unworthy people like you and I. And, and just ask the Lord, Lord, will you turn this great sacrifice that you have done on my behalf, will you turn that into just this raw devotion to you? And this worship of you with my life that I truly would, in the words of Paul, offer my body as a living sacrifice to you because and in view of the great mercy which you have shown me. So allow this to be a time where where your heart is searched and you search your heart and allow the Spirit to search your heart because there is nothing, nothing that symbolizes the love of God for you and the love of Christ for me than what is represented in this table. The bread and the cup, his body, and his blood poured out for us. All right? So as you come this morning, I want you to meditate on, on that. Worship team's going to come, and they are going to play. And, and uh, I'm going to pray in just a moment. And when I do, if I could have those serving communion, come take their place. And then um, if you're a follower of Jesus, um, then we invite you to come while the music is playing. And... Take bread, cup, you can take it with your family, you can take it by yourself, you can take it on the stairs if you like. Um, We have one new thing that I want to tell you about, and that is um, at the center plate, there's bread that is free from gluten, soy, and nuts. So... (laughs) We have, uh, you know, the benefit and blessing of having people who are allergic to things that they learn how to make bread that they can help other people. So at this central place, just come forward. And when, you're, when Ron Guffey, you're going to be the one distributing this, right? Just say, gluten-free, please, and he'd be happy to, to serve you. Okay, so that's this center table, free of soy, nuts, and gluten, all right? So people who have struggles with that. So let me, um, 
Let me pray and then just worship the Lord through this, through this symbol, through this remembrance. Lord, you are good. And one of the great difficulties for those of us who have been in the faith for years is to get past the clicheness of this whole thing. To get past the repetition and the familiarity fact that we've probably done this perhaps dozens or hundreds or thousands of times and to see it and experience it with a fresh heart and to really contemplate Lord that this is what you did for us this is how good you are this is how merciful you are this is how steadfast and faithful you are And not because we're worth it, but because you're just that great in love. And so, please, just clear away whatever hinders us from experiencing this in its fullness this morning. If repentance is needed, bring us to a place of joyful brokenness. I know you're a Lord who loves to respond to a repentant heart. So we just ask, please, just do your work here this morning in our community as we gather around this table so sacred to your people. Pray this in Christ's name.